um, related to the building, um, I hope this comes across the way I want it to. So if Lion and Lamb is your church family, give to this project. If Lion and Lamb is your church family, then give. And if it's a little, give a little. That's fine. But don't not give. This is a family project. This is your church family. If this is your church home. So if this is your church home, do something so that when we go into that new building, as I believe we will, whether that's next year, the year after, whatever, that's your building. That's part of what you've participated in. If it's not a lot, that's fine. It doesn't have to be a lot. But all of us, if this is our church family, should participate because it's all about us. It's not about somebody else and not about me. It's about all of us participating. It's reading in 1 Chronicles 29 for other reasons, but it's the end of David's life, and he talks to the people about all the stuff, the money, the materials he set aside for the building of the temple. Now, today, we are the temple of God. We don't confuse. A building is not the church, right? We're the church, but we meet in that church building. And David had set aside all these funds. And the, it, the people says they rejoiced because they gave willingly to what God was doing. And that's the sense we should have, too. We want to have joy because we give willingly to what God's doing in this church family. So, so if this is your church home, participate. If it's a dollar, let it be a dollar. If it's ten, let it be ten. But do something so that you've got your finger in this thing that we believe God's doing, okay? Okay. Okay, with that, let me get on. Uh, put your thinking caps on. Use your imagination just a little bit with me here for a minute as we sort of set the stage for the message this morning. So imagine this. Imagine a young woman engaged to be married wants to postpone her wedding. The reason is this. Great, great reason. She wants to get married in the cathedral of her dreams. Now there's a long line, and, and that cathedral is in high demand. So the wedding's not going to take place this month, probably not this year, maybe not next year. Okay, but I'm holding out because I want my special day to be in that setting. Now I'm not picking on women today, and I'm not picking on brides, okay? This is to make a point. So what do I think of that woman and her heart towards her fiancé? So this is one conclusion you might draw. She wants a wedding more than she wants her husband. Got to be in that place. Doesn't matter how long it takes, right? How about this one? Similar theme. Couple's engaged to be married. He's a long way away. He's in another city. And his fiance texts him or she tweets him or she calls him or she Skypes him or she Facebooks him or whatever. Whatever she does, she says, honey, listen, there's no hurry. Just take the pressure off. I've got so much to do that it doesn't matter when you get back. Okay, so take your time. There's no hurry. Now, they're engaged to be married, okay? What does that guy think of the affections of his fiance? That's like, right? It doesn't sound like she wants to get married at all. It sounds like her fiance is second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth violin to the things she's already got going, right? Doesn't matter when we get married. Take your time. Come back sometime later because I've got too much going on. Uh, we typically tell engaged couples something like this. Uh, keep engagement short. There's a reason for that. Because if a young guy and a young gal want to get married and they're healthy, they've got a strong emotional and physical desire to consummate their marriage and to be together, right? 
go to bed in the same bed, wake up in the same bed in the morning. We eat together, we sleep together, we want life to be together. So long engagements are often an unwise temptation. But there's that passion and desire. Uh, Kathy and I were engaged, we were split across the country, and you know, life was good, we're busy, right? Things are going on, there's things to do. Not to denigrate or minimize any of the things going on in the moment, but you know, at the same time, there's this sense that this is okay, but I'm waiting for the wedding day. That's the point I want to get to. So I'm, life's full now, life's good now, but there's something to come that my expectation is set on. And it sort of informs, it's the backdrop to everything else that's going on. So thinking about just the whole thing about affections, desires, heart, what's, what's in us, what's driving us, what's got us going. So if you've got a study sheet, take that out if you haven't already. And on the top there, there's a place for you to fill in a number. So we take that thought of anticipation, desire, passion, and, let, and we turn that on its head a little bit. We pivot on that and we say this. If I rank my desire for Jesus to return imminently and that my life as I know it is over, but I see him face to face and I'm with him forever, how strong is that desire on my part? So one would be next to zero. I don't care. Don't come. Ten is come and come as soon as you can. It's my heart. That's my desire. What's our number? How do we rank that? What's my level of desire? Don't kid ourselves on this one, by the way. What's my desire that Jesus comes today? And I don't mean this. I don't mean I live life at a ripe old age of 80 or 90 or 100. I die, and then I see Jesus, and ain't that grand. That's not what I mean. I mean that he could interrupt all my plans and come today. Would that be a good thing? How much do I want that? One, two, eight, ten? You know, related to eschatology or prophecy, probably true for some of you here, prophecy is a big deal. It's a position of interest. The scriptures teach one thing and another what's coming. And uh, we get caught up in that, don't we? So the key questions are these. Are you pre-millennial or are you post-millennial? And if you're correctly pre-millennial, and I might continue my conversation, but then I'm going to grade you more finely. So are you pre-trib? Correctly. Or are you mid-trib? You're off a little. Or are you post-trib? You're off entirely. Where do you stand in all that? So see, you can if you go online, there's tons of stuff about this, right? About prophecy, about eschatology, about last things, and, and what's happening, who's the beast, and all this, this stuff. Papers are written, books are written, conferences are attended. But with all that said, this is my take, and maybe I'm off, but I don't think I'm off by much. It would seem to me that the bride of Christ on earth today is far more interested in extending the time before Jesus' return for the temporary pleasures and trinkets we currently enjoy. My take is this. I think we tend to be like the bride that says to a bridegroom in a distant land, take your time, there's no hurry, my plate is full. I think that's generally for most of us what's going on. I could be wrong. I hope I am, but I don't think so. So this is the last in our series, Occupy Till I Come. Uh, thanks to Mark Ediger, by the way, 
Mark's been a great asset on the elder board and in leadership generally, but the concept for this five-week series was Mark's, and the, the Luke 19 passage that we started with was Mark's as well. And if you remember fi- uh, the first Sunday of September, uh, Mark kicked us off the Luke 19 parable about the master who leaves to go receive a kingdom. And before he leaves, he leaves various amounts of money with his servants, and he says, <clears throat> in the language of one translation, occupy till I come with this money I'm giving you, and then I'm going to come back one day. Excuse me. So Mark's focus on that first week was spiritual gifts. You've been given gifts by which God means for you to serve the church, to build up the body of Christ. Are you using those? And not only that, but that you're going to face Jesus like a servant does a master one day when you give an account. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. A little bit anyway, just to remind ourselves. But we're going to give an account like a servant does to a master. Are we ready for that? Kent followed up and reminded us that while we're occupying, we are meant to be, excuse me, ambassadors for Christ, that we're supposed to be communicating the gospel. That's part of occupying. Communicating the gospel in our time and in our place, being shrewd culturally, politically, being astute in what it takes to communicate the gospel clearly. Bill talked about the fact that while we occupy the sphere Christ has given us for now, we are in occupied territory that is we're in the we're in the world system that's overseen by satan that we're in a spiritual battle and it requires spiritual armor for us we looked at ephesians 6 larry taught us that while we're occupying and being faithful god is not just doing a work through us god is doing a work in us that while on one hand he set us apart absolutely in christ for himself He's still renovating us on the interior. We call that the process of sanctification. He's making us more holy like Jesus. That's going on. This morning we're looking at the attitude of heart uh, that we're cultivating while we, while we labor and wait for Jesus' return. Now, <clears throat> I tend to see the glass half empty, so accuse me of that, maybe. But I think most of us will score low on a 1 to 10 scale. <clears throat> And if you tend to feel guilty about that, we need to understand that guilt is a really poor motivator. You can feel guilty about something in a moment, and it'll be gone tomorrow. Guilt doesn't last as an adequate motivation. Desire needs to be there. Jesus doesn't want our guilt. You know, I feel so bad I should desire you, Lord, but I don't. I feel so guilty. Jesus isn't after our guilt. But he does want our hearts. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want a conviction that's adequate. 2 Corinthians says that sometimes you and I get a guilt or a sorrow that's just part of the world. And it doesn't work. It doesn't bring any change. But he says there's a godly sorrow or there's a form of conviction that when our heart is smitten with the truth and the Spirit's at work in us, that's what brings change. So if we find that our desire to see Christ, see Him face to face as soon as possible, and see him glorified also. If that desire is lacking, we can inform our hearts. So part of what I hope we do this morning is we affect our affections. That we inform the affections of our heart if they're not where they should be. That's what, hopefully that's what we'll do this morning. So I want to remind you that when Mark took us through the Luke 19 parable, it had to do with a master and servant. And this is just a brief reminder. 
you have three verses, three passages on your study sheet that talk about the fact that you as an individual believer will stand face to face, eye to eye with the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where like a master does his servant, Jesus will review the works of your life. This has nothing to do with salvation. Only believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not about salvation, it's about your works. And it's as if God puts a fire, Jesus puts a fire to our works, and the stuff that was done for the right reason for Christ, it survives. And Jesus rewards us for those works like a master does a servant. This is huge, it's key. Guys, nothing you give up in your life on earth to be prepared for that judgment will be a loss when you stand before Christ to hear, well done, here's your reward. So this is a huge deal, and I don't want to undervalue this aspect of the parable, but this isn't what we're talking about this morning. So that's the faithfulness of a servant to a master. What we're talking about this morning is the affection of a bride for the groom. This is a very different relationship. So we talk a lot about faithfulness. Faithfulness is key and it's important, but that's not actually what we're talking about this morning. This morning it's about affections of the heart, the desire for Christ himself, not something lesser. So you guys, most of you know, that is so interesting. Most of you know that uh, my daughters, four daughters, no sons, four daughters, they were typical little girls. They loved to play. They played house. They wanted to grow up and be just like their mom. They wanted to get married, and they wanted to have kids and raise a family. And, you know, Kathy and I were never able to figure this out, but whenever my daughters played house together, they were a family. They were orphans. They had no parents. Their parents had always tragically died. We've never heard a solution, an answer to that. I kid you not. To this day, we weren't around. But they wanted to grow up and get married. And so they played like little girls did. They, they, they played house, right? They played with each other. We read books together. We had discussions together. And as they grew, those discussions become more focused and more centered on an adult view, right, of marriage and a spouse and, and family and children. So that when my daughters met the young men that would become their husbands, their hearts were primed for those affections incumbent on a bride for her groom. The, the intellect had been informed, the affections were ready, so that when they got married, their husbands got gals that wanted to love them, that were ready to give their affections to them because they were primed. Their affections were informed. So the question for me this morning, I think for us too at the end of this series, is what are our hearts primed for? For What are our affections already feeding on and thinking about? So if you ask yourself today, what do I love to daydream about? That's a good indicator of where our heart's at. And, and by the way, we, we think about all kinds of things. This is not to naysay any of the things we think about, any of the good things God has for us in life, right? This is not a guilt trip this morning, okay? But this isn't about less affections. This is about more affections, okay? So what do we daydream about? What are our hearts fixed on? What do we think about? 
What do we think about? Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, because from it flow the issues of life. You've got affections, guys. You've got things that you value. And even if you haven't recognized, they affect your decisions. They affect how you think, subconsciously. What has, what has uh, informed our heart? What has affected our affections? Where are we at on that? Let's, I'll read a few lines from William Wordsworth here. For most of us, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit also, but for most of us, it's not that we don't have affections. We do have affections. But we just tend to waste them on lesser things instead of greater things. So in, in these four lines from Wordsworth, he basically says this. He says people are, and this is, guys, this is 300 years ago. He says basically people are so busy buying and selling consumerism that they're caught up in the stuff that's going on in the world. In his poem, he says, they don't even have the energy left to enjoy the grandeur of nature around them. They've made a trade. They've set their affections on something. It was just not the best thing they could have got for the trade. He says it this way, the world is too much with us late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. The affections we've got, we've spent them. Little we see in nature, that's ours. His, his subject for this is nature, the beauties of nature, the grandeur of nature. He says, we've given our hearts away. We've given our hearts away, but it was a sordid boon. It was a lousy trade. Our hearts have been satisfied with trinkets so that they can't appreciate treasures instead. And I think that's for most of us, that's, that's unfortunate. It's where we tend to where we tend to. If we lack affections for Jesus, it's probably because we've set those affections that we do have on lesser things. And so the best way to fan the flames, uh, to think about, to think about Christ in a different way, uh, let me suggest some things, and nothing, nothing I'm saying this morning is new. You can probably guess it. The first is to meet Christ in the Scriptures every day. I know read your Bible sounds old and it sounds trite, but it's not, and there's a lot packed into that. You know, Genesis 1-1 starts, in the beginning, God. John 1-1 starts, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. It trades back on Genesis 1-1. Revelation 22 ends with, Amen, come Lord Jesus. What do you think the Bible's about? It's about Christ, beginning to end, and everything in between is about Christ. We've said this before, but when we sit down to read our Bible, it's not primarily to get information. It's not primarily to be smarter or to have some quip for somebody else. It's to meet the Lord. You know, if you're reading the Old Testament, it's like taking a walk in the pasture. You know, broad stories, vistas, uh, poetry taking a walk with the Lord in those fields. The New Testament is sort of like sitting down with him face to face. It's more concerted truth. But we're meeting Christ when we're in the scriptures. God uses it in all kinds of ways, the truth, but it shouldn't be less than that. That when we get our Bibles out each morning, we're meeting Christ. The other thing we should be doing each morning is praying to him. And I don't mean a prayer list. I don't mean a checkoff box. I don't mean God bless Aunt Sally. 
I mean, Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. And a friend that I really care about is going through a terrible time, and I, and I don't know what to do. Pouring our hearts out. What you'll find is this. Your heart will be bound to Christ when you see him in the scriptures and when you give him your heart in prayer. You'll find that your heart is bound to him. It can't be otherwise. Think of something like Romans 12. Whether we're students or we're working, we're at home, whatever's going on, we're offering what we do to Christ as an act of worship, Romans 12.1. That changes the way we think about it. We're not just doing something for Jesus, we're doing it with Him. The other thing, the huge thing for me is what we do right here on Sunday mornings. It's simply to gather with the saints and worship together because God promises to show up when the body of Christ meets. Two or more gather in my name, I'm there. God shows up by His Spirit when we're in the Word, when we pray, when we worship together in a way you can't meet the Lord on your own at home. We worship together and God meets us. And I hope that's true for you. Over the years, I feel like God's shown me sin. He's shown me comfort. You know, you guys can't, I'm up here. There's many Sundays I'm just weepy because I'm convicted or because I'm encouraged. But that doesn't occur for me at home. That occurs here. My heart is bound to Christ through worshiping with you guys here. And last, and we're not, we're not developing any of this this morning, Put away deficient idols. If I realize my heart, my affection has been set on trinkets, get rid of the trinkets. Get rid of anything that keeps me from having those appropriate affections, those life-altering, life-giving affections for Christ. Now, uh, back to my, not childhood, but younger life. You know, my wife's a lovely gal. I married up a long way. <clears throat> Four girls couldn't be more pleased or proud of. We had a great time. We had a great time. Um, but there was a four-letter word that was uttered in my house all the time, and I couldn't get my wife or girls to stop using it. I know this is um, shocking. Uh, and the four-letter word was C-U-T-E. So did, do you know what it's like to be around girls? Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? That is so cute. I couldn't believe how cute it was. We said at our house, cuteness was abounding. Cuteness abounding. Isn't that cute? You know the way I felt about that word and that concept is the way I think most guys feel, and maybe some gals feel, about loving Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Remember I was a new Christian. Some guy came up to me and he said, what do you think about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And I thought, is that an uncomfortable question? That's mushy, man. What do you mean? <laughs> He's a guy and I'm a guy. What do you mean do I love him? What does that mean? <laughs> you know, it was like, well, I think when we talk about this thing, especially for guys, do I love Jesus and is my heart's desire to see him face to face? It can sound mushy. It can sound like cute. sounded to me with Kathy and the girls. And that's not quite the deal. Right, Because what, what God does is he uses the language of brides and grooms, of husbands and wives, as a lens to focus on the kind of relationship we're called to in him. It's not an apples to apples. It's not one is the other. It's one gives you a hint about the other. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, 
he wanted believers like you and me to have a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. Then later he says, I've betrothed you to Christ. He, he uses the language of betrothal and marriage because that's helpful for us, not because it's exactly the same thing. So, for instance, the desire for marriage is a driving desire for most of us. Most of us, as we go through adolescence and we grow up, we want to get married. It informs our life. That kind of desire is what we're made for with Christ as believers. That should be sort of intricate with what we are. It's part of us. We can be vulnerable with our spouse. They know us like no one else, right? If you wake up with bad breath in the morning, your spouse is going to know it. You can't hide things from your spouse, right? And you're good with that. Right? They know us. They know us intimately. And Jesus knows us like your spouse can never know you. You know, all the things we can't tell our spouse and shouldn't. Things going on inside, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. And he loves us anyway. There's that thought, marital love, this, this uh, open-faced love with each other. There's also, along with that, there's a sense of fulfillment. Um, you, you know, for me as a young guy, I got married far sooner than I thought I wanted to. And what marriage did was, uh, George Gilder talks about this, it harnessed my young man's energy and affections. It made me productive in a way I would have just spent years on myself. It was a good thing. I was fulfilled because I got married, and the things that marriage required of me fulfilled me. They made me more the person God always meant me to be. That relationship we have with Christ, it doesn't take anything away from us. It pulls us up more fully into the real person God always meant us to be. It's not a loss, it's a gain. So we want to make sure we understand when we're talking about our heart's desire for Christ, do we love Jesus and do we want to see him immediately? We're not talking about a man and woman thing. It's not a sexual thing. It's those things that give the clearest hint of what a rich, fulfilling, overflowing joy a great desirability we have in our relationship with Christ. And this speaks to it. It's not the same thing, but it speaks to it. So with me for just a minute, explore a few of the ways that we can affect our affections or inform our heart so that loving Jesus, valuing him more highly, isn't some dread thing we, we guiltily try to do, but it's the thing we can't stop from doing. The first thing is this, Jesus is our maker, he's your creator. Uh, John 1, 1 through th uh, 3, Jesus is not only the word of God, he's God and he created everything. There's nothing that's been created on the, in the cosmos that Jesus didn't create. He is your maker. You come from him, specifically, each one of us, comes from Christ and Christ's will. You don't exist here apart from Christ's will. This cosmos doesn't exist here apart from Christ's will. Not only that, but think about this for just a second. Every delight you've ever known was planted as a seed in this earth and in your imagination by Christ. Every, every lovely thing you've seen or heard or tasted or participated in was all made possible because Jesus lovingly made us and this world and all the ways we get to interact in it. 
He's our creator. I love Psalm 16. You know, people that think being a Christian is boring or that heaven would be boring. Psalm 16, that it's in his presence. There, is, there are pleasures forevermore. There's joy at his right hand. Psalm 36, there are rivers of delight. Jesus is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and that's where we're going to live. And there's no downside to that. He's our maker. We come from his hand. He's also our redeemer. Titus 2.14 says, um, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You know Jesus intends to possess you as a believer? Does that sound presumptuous? Jesus possesses me? This is the, this is the language of a slave market. Jesus redeems us. You, you know, the slave markets in those days, naked people were sold. You think of the story of Hosea in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm redeeming this one. I'm buying this one back. This one is mine. And if that sounds sort of obtrusive, you remember in the Song of Songs what the lovers say to each other? They say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's that sense of possession. That's what Jesus says about us. I've redeemed them to make them my own possession. He says that to us as individuals. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, you see this uh, also, uh, Philippians 3, I think. Anyway, Jesus' death on the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could have his righteousness. And the other passage, it says that your sins and mine passed present and future it's as if God wrote them down and that when Pilate hung the charge on Jesus's cross king of the Jews that was the claim or the charge treason as it were that your sins were nailed to that same cross that Jesus died under the charge of your sins every one of them that's what he did for it he redeemed us we, in fact, uh, we were without God and without hope in the world. Friends, that's the most depressing thing anyone could ever be. Without God, without hope. That's what we were. We were dead in trespass and sin. Jesus comes out and he redeems us. Luke twenty-two nineteen 19 is for me, it's one of the sweeter passages in the scriptures having to do with the Lord's Supper. Do you remember when Jesus transformed the Passover meal with the disciples to something different that he told them to do afterward? And you remember when he said, take this bread and break it. And when you do, remember my body's broken for you. And when you drink from this cup, drink from this cup and remember my lifeblood spilled out for you. And he says, remember me this way. And, and what does that mean? Basically, remember how much I've loved you. My body instead of yours. My life instead of yours. I've laid it all out to purchase or to redeem you. Psalm 103 talks about the things God does for us in Christ, forgiven, healed, redeemed, crowned with love, mercy, satisfied, and renewed. Another one is Jesus is our shepherd. By the way, we're just running quickly through a few things, right? The more time you spend in Scripture, the more you realize, oh, and, and he's done this for me, and he's done this for me, and he's done this for me. Jesus is our shepherd. Think of John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. Or think of Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's going to take care of me. Jesus says, I'll always be with you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Like that shepherd, 
constant presence, constantly attending to us. There's a passage we're less familiar with that the Jews knew well from Ezekiel 34. God had indicted the leaders of, of Israel in Ezekiel's day by telling them all the things they hadn't done as the shepherds of his people. And these are the things God said through Christ. He'd send his own shepherd, John 10, and this is what that shepherd would do. He heals us when we're sick. He binds us up when we're injured. He brings us back when we stray. And he finds us when we're lost. That's what Jesus, the good shepherd, does for all of his own today. Who hasn't experienced that thing? I was straying. God brought me back. It might be from a scripture. It might be from a friend. God brought me back. That's Christ shepherding care for us. He's also, he's not just uh, Jesus in heaven, right? When you believe in Christ, you get Christ in you. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. That's true for every Christian. Because I'm in Christ, I am God's child. John 1. Came to his own, his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right or the power to become children of God. You're God's child in Christ. You are a fellow heir with Christ. This is ridiculous. The promises to the letters in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, one of them is, you'll sit on my throne with me. As a Christian, as a believer in eternity, the new heavens and new earth, we sit with Jesus. Is that ridiculous? The King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shares his throne with you and me. That's what he does for us. That's what he promises us. We have an internal inheritance. In fact, in Ephesians 1, 3, if there's any way for God the Father to bless us, he's already done it in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is already ours in Christ. Whatever Jesus has, we have just like a bride is co-owner of all that her husband has. Same thing, same thought. And last, his physical glory, there's no images, frankly, Good images of this are so cheesy that they're not worth putting up. This is from Dor or Dore. The description of Jesus in his glory in Revelation 1, if he appeared to us now, you couldn't stand up. You couldn't raise your head. You couldn't speak. Because his presence physically is so overawing and glorious. Hair white like wool, face shines like the sun in its strength, eyes like fire, skin glows like molten metal, dressed in white, girded with gold. His voice sounds like Niagara Falls. He is so marvelously glorious, we couldn't stand today in his presence. Apart from his empowerment, you can't stand in Christ's presence. He's that glorious. Paul said in Philippians 3.8 that he'd lost everything he ever counted of value in gaining Christ and said he'd lost nothing at all. That if you and I, in fact, remember Jesus said, if you gain the world and lose your soul, what have you got? Nothing. But if you lose the world and gain Christ, what did you get? Everything. You and I won't lack anything as believers. Whatever we don't do or sacrifice in this world, we, we haven't lost a thing for the value of knowing Christ. So with that thought of, do you love Jesus? Loving Jesus isn't for sissies. It's not about being cute. It requires every bit of us, all of us, all our masculinity, all our femininity, all our humanity, or we might say from Scripture, requires all our heart, 
all our soul, all our might, all our strength. So we want to inform our affections in all the ways we need to. Now, I want to wind down uh, talking about two, two things related to Jesus appearing. Two things related to Jesus appearing. And I'm not going to try and parse this on a timetable, okay? There's, but there's two things, two primary reasons why Jesus returns. Whether you believe these are two things that happen at the same time or these are two things separated by time, I don't really care this morning. Jesus says he's returning and he's, doing, he's covering two bases at least when he does so. The first is he returns for us. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. And that's what our heart should long for. You know, in the scriptures, uh, there's a prayer, uh, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Revelation 22 ends, come Lord Jesus. That's that thought. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, new Christians who had friends or family that were Christians in Thessalonica, they died and they wondered, well, they're going to miss out because Paul had already told them. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 say, Paul says that everybody knows you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus whom he raised from the dead, Jesus that saves us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus' return in their day. That's instructive, isn't it? Paul wasn't there very long. One of the first things he told them is Jesus is coming back and you should be waiting. I don't think most of us think that way today, 2,000 years later. But this is what Paul said from God. Word from the Lord, we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord, we don't go before those who've fallen asleep. Their souls are in heaven, their bodies are in the ground. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. The voice of the archangel sounds, the trumpet of God sounds, and the dead in Christ rise. And then we who are alive and who are left were caught up together with them. In the Greek, when it's translated to the Latin, it's called raptura. That's why we say the rapture. That's caught up. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's what they were waiting for. And that's what we're supposed to be waiting for. Is it today, Lord? Are you coming back today? Or maybe it's tomorrow. There's no timetable on this. 2,000 years ago, Paul didn't uh, didn't, uh, correct them, by the way, on that, did he? Oh, you're waiting for Jesus. But you're going to die. Generations are going to born and uh, be born, live and die. He didn't say you're waiting in vain. They were waiting because they didn't know when it would be. Could be today. I still think the return of Christ for his church is imminent. Could happen at any time. So we're supposed to live with this expectancy. Jesus is returning for us. There's another thing. When Jesus was on the earth last time, how did he fare? How did he fare? He was uh, humiliated, spit on, scourged, crucified, speared, and buried. We, we would say that's pretty uh, not-so-subtle form of rejection, right? He was rejected. Absolutely. Listen from Luke 19. Remember Jesus told the parable that started our series? In his parable... What did his subjects think of the master who went to get a kingdom? His citizens hated him. But 
they said, we don't want you to reign over us. That was Jesus' reception on the earth. We hate you, and we don't want you, and we won't have you. That's what Jesus' creatures came from his hand, said to him. That's what we said to him. He was reje we rejected Christ. His creatures rejected him. Well, Jesus is coming back, and it's not going to look like the first time. You know, our church name encompasses the two phases of Jesus' incarnation. He's the lion, or excuse me, he's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's good. That's salvation. He's the lion from a tribe, the tribe of Judah who overcomes, and that's who's coming back. Listen to this from 2 Thessalonians 1. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He's inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And l please listen to this. These people are not victims when Jesus comes back in fiery trial. It says they don't know God and they refuse to obey the gospel. This same letter in chapter 2 says they refused the love of the truth. That's why they're not saved. They were given the gospel. They said, we don't want this one to reign over us. And that's who's returning. Guys, one of the reasons we should want the consummation of the ages is because the hero that died for us is returning for his own glory. For his own glory. You know, if you've got a hero who's been treated badly, don't you want to see them lifted up and honored? That's part of the reason we should want this thing to end because Jesus gets his glory because he returns to rule the earth that rejected him. The sins of the world that he died for, he comes and takes up his rule, his reign. We should want Jesus to return. So our hero is glorified. We should care that the world that rejected Jesus will kneel in submission to him. And we should relegate every other desire under the desire of the ages to see Jesus face to face and to see him take up his throne and receive his glory. Guys, we're going to wind down. Uh, this is a three and a half minute video. And many of you have already seen this or heard this. I could think of no better way to wind down either the series uh, or this message. So you can close your eyes if you want. You can relax. Uh, but this is well worth our three and a half minutes. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's in turnless form. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? 
He's God's Son. He's a sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah. He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. And he'll have no successor. You can't even beat him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. The brother who preached that, S.M. Lockridge, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, as in Jesus' presence today, preached that about 30 years ago. Guys, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to conclude reading something together. Lord Jesus, would you forgive us again for all the trinkets we've traded for the treasure that's in you? Lord, would you help us to lift up our eyes and see your beauty, your loveliness? Would you help us to put all other desires beneath the desire to see you, to be with you, and to see you reign in your glory? forever. Amen. Guys, let's read this from Revelation 22 together. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, 
early. I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.